going to be in Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, and we're going to look at the last few verses here in verse 33 through verse 36 as uh, we're looking at glory to God alone, and uh, this is the last of the five solas that we've been studying together, and uh, I love this passage of scripture as, as most of us know that this passage is a, a wonderful doxology uh, that Paul gives uh, in Romans, and uh, I think it clearly communicates uh, this doctrine and this truth that we're looking at here this evening. So let's read it here in Romans 11, verse 33, down through verse number 36. Paul writes here, and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has, been, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You know, when we consider history, when we th- think of creation, salvation, eternity, we think about where glory belongs for all of that. Where does glory belong? Now, this indeed is a central truth, I believe, that we consider when we look at the gospel, we look at the church, we look at the world as we know it. We must know that the glory of God is preeminent in all things, not just some things, but all things. And this is what we would call the fifth sola. It's known as soli deo gloria. It means glory to God alone. And so it's an important doctrinal principle, I believe, that Scripture clearly teaches us. So when the Reformers preached and taught this doctrine uh, that glory was to him alone, it literally means that, that zero glory is given to any other. Zero glory belongs to us. Zero glory belongs to any other that we could think of, that it all goes to him. And so I believe that this truth is woven throughout Scripture, throughout history, uh, from beginning to end, end on into eternity. I think if we miss this point, we miss everything pretty much, uh, because we look at our world and glory is always in, in, attributed to other places, isn't it? Uh, it's glory to the church, glory to man, glory to whoever's a leader, glory to this and that, uh, but this truth that Paul brings out in our text, it's one of the most, it's most beautiful and powerful doxologies we see in scripture. We've, we've often heard that uh, the book of Romans has often been called the gospel according to Paul, and as you read Romans, uh, he is this essentially giving us a discourse of the gospel. Uh, he's giving us in-depth detail of what Christ has done. We see uh, God's work of redemption, revealing man's sinfulness, and the atoning work of Christ, and the conversion of a sinner. We get to Romans 9 and forward. We see God's eternal working of this and uh, how he's brought all of this to pass. And so through the book of Romans, Paul has taken the reader from the bottom to the top, from uh, the finite to the infinite scope of redemption and God's sovereignty, and he brings us to a place where we see just the big picture, the grandeur of all of it. And this is what I want to focus on essentially is verse 36. We read through this passage, and you see how Paul describes the depths of God's knowledge and his ways and who's known his mind, but verse 36 is really what captures everything I want to bring out and really what will break down. Notice he says, for from him and through him, and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. 
Now, essentially what this passage brings to light for us, it reveals to us that God is bigger than many think Him be, to be today. Even among some Christian circles, they don't give Him the credit that is due unto Him. And I believe that a low view of God has contributed to much conformity and compromise among Christianity in our day. I like this quote by Tozer. He says, in his day and time, which was several years ago, he said, the low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. And I certainly believe that. I believe that a low view of God contributes to a lot of issues. It diminishes the glory of God while a high view of God magnifies him, magnifies his glory. So glory to God alone is indeed an important doctrine for us. So notice within our notes tonight, and I'll try to come through this in a timely fashion, but I want you to see that three things that we just bring out of this one verse, okay, that Paul summarizes. I want you to see firstly that God alone is the source of his glory. God alone is the source of his glory. And you'll notice this firstly in what Paul says, those two little words he says, of him are all things, of him. Are all things. So all things uh, flow from him for his glory, for, for th- that exists. And so I break this down into two overarching themes. And I think the first thing that we would th- see from this is that uh, from God, creation is for his glory. Let's start there. From God, creation is for his glory. Now, I think for us to understand this, we recognize just a couple principal characteristics of God. And this first one I point out is this, is that God is eternal. God is eternal. Now, that's a truth that's mind-boggling to us. It's hard for us to understand that, isn't it? We are bound to time. God's not bound to time, right? We have beginnings and ending, but God, he has no beginning. He has no end. Uh, as, as Moses writes in Psalm 90, verse 2, he says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so when we contemplate this, uh, this reality, before creation, there was just God. Now, the big question is, well, where'd God come from? Well, he didn't come from anywhere. He's just always been. Uh, that's what the secular mind tries to think. They can't contemplate this idea. They can't wrap their mind around the eternal nature of God. But this is a glorious truth of who God is. The reality is, is if we could wrap our mind around who God is, then the finite would then be able to comprehend the infinite. He wouldn't really be infinite, would he? So God is infinite, we're finite. We have to uh, submit ourselves to the reality that he's beyond us. So there in the beginning, before creation, you have just God, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfect harmony, perfect communion and union together, uh, uh, as we see. But a second aspect I want to point out to you is that, and this all culminates in the glory of God himself, not only is that God is eternal, but also that God is self-sufficient. He is self-sufficient. What, is it, what do I mean by that? It means that God has no need for anything. He has no need for anything. Now, contrary to us, we are dependent on a lot of things, right? We must have oxygen to live and breathe, right? If we didn't have oxygen right now, we wouldn't be living and breathing. We must have food. We must have water. We must have, we're dependent beings. But God being the highest being, the eternal being, He is dependent on nothing and no one. He doesn't need anything. Now, Acts 17, 24, and 25 kind of communicate this truth. The Bible says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, 
as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he doesn't need anything. So guess what that means? God doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need anybody. He doesn't need anything. And yet, at the same time, though he doesn't need us or need anything, what did he do? He chose to create you and me and everything that we see. So when we consider the infinite and perfect nature of God, we kind of wonder about creation, right? Since God is eternal and he's self-sufficient, why did he create anything if he doesn't need anything? You know what the answer to that is? For his own pleasure and his own glory. That's it. For his own pleasure and for his own glory. Now, what does creation testify around us? Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The glory of God in the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I love this passage in Revelation 4.11 where the saints are singing and they're praising him. And they say, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So why were they created? Because God willed them to be. Some translations have that as pleasure. It was his pleasure to create them. Uh, it was his pleasure to bring forth all that is. And so he created and did all this for his own glory. So when Paul says that of him are all things, this points firstly to the creation that God has brought all things into existence that had no existence beforehand. He did not make creation from matter, for there was no matter in existence. He simply brought everything to pass by the word of his mouth. John Murray, a former theologian of years ago, said, God is the source of all things in that they have proceeded from him. He is the creator. He is the agent through whom all things subsist and are directed to their proper end. And he is the last end to whose glory all things will redound. So when we consider creation, where else could glory belong other than God? Nowhere. But notice also, letter B, from God is redemption for his glory. Not only creation, but redemption. Now, with creation came the creation of man, as we know, who was uniquely made in the image of God. And we know that man was created in a state of innocence with the ability to fall from that innocence. As we read Genesis, we read man disobeyed God's command. He brought sinful depravity and uh, death upon humanity, as Romans 5.12 tells us. As, ju therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men for all of sin. So man fell into sin, leaving his state of innocence, Adam brought depravity and death to the very nature of man, the whole of man's nature being bound to his sinful corruption. Jesus said everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, and so we find that man naturally in his mind, will, emotions, his soul is bound to a sinful boundary. He's bound to a sinful nature, and as such, he is guilty before God. He deserves holy justice and wrath, and it is just that we receive that. But what does this fall into sin necessitate? What does it mean? What does it bring about the need for? It brings about the need for redemption. It brings about the need for our salvation. And this brings us to the core of God's plan and really the pinnacle of His glory. It is the redemption of sinners from their fallen state. Now, here's what we have to understand is that salvation 
was not an afterthought after the fall. God did not create man and think, okay, everything is good and perfect. And then Adam sinned and God said, oh no, what should we do? It wasn't an afterthought. It was not an afterthought that, well, I guess since man fell, now I better work out some way in which to save him. Though it was Adam who fell, it was part of God's ordained plan in the cause of redemption without God being the author of evil. Now you say, well, that's kind of confusing. Welcome to the club. You get into some of the eternal things of God, and there are some things we just can't wrap our mind around. But one thing we do know is that God does not tempt man with evil, nor does he cause evil in man. But at the same time, he ordained it to a certain purpose, and that purpose is what brought about redemption. Now Peter makes this plain in Acts chapter 2. I want you to see this. Acts chapter 2, and verse 22 through 24, I think this is one of the most plain passages that reveals the sovereignty of God working parallel with the actions of men, and it has to do with the crucifixion of Jesus that accomplishes our redemption. Now look at, look at Acts chapter 2, and verse 22 through 24, and notice this. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, this passage is so clear. Notice what he says. This Jesus, the one they rejected, the one they crucified, he says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So this is God's plan that Jesus be crucified by them. Now understand that foreknowledge is not God looking down the tunnels of time to learn about something that's going to happen he didn't know about beforehand. There's a lot of people that have that idea that foreknowledge is just God's foresight. Wrong. The very word foreknowledge here literally means, in the Greek definition, predetermination of God's omniscient wisdom and intention. So foreknowledge is not God learning that they're going to make all these decisions and crucify him. God ordained that they would crucify him. But at the same time, parallel to that, notice what Peter says. He says, you crucified and killed Jesus. You did, talking to the Jews, right? So, so he says, God planned it, and you're the ones who did it. So, so you see how God's sovereignty, working hand in hand with, with man and, and, and his own actions, the cross was, was planned by God as the act of redemption, long before it ever happened, even in eternity past, while at the same time it was orchestrated by wicked men. Now, that is what we'd call, I guess, a paradox, <laughs> A paradox, two truths that seem to conflict but yet work together for God's intended end. Now, in this great story of redemption, we see that God planned redemption in Christ before creation, even to the fact that those who he redeems are also planned before creation, penned in the very book of life. Revelation 13, 8 tells us, as John speaks in reference of those who are worshiping the beast, he says, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of, the life, book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So you notice that there are names that were not written before the world. And then there are names that are written before the world. 
And so this all coincides with God's plan of redemption. And so the course of history in this whole created order would necessitate redemption that only God could bring to pass. Only He could orchestrate. Now, we may not fully comprehend the eternal working of God. And let me let you in on something. We're not meant to fully comprehend the eternal working of God because it's an eternal thing, not something that's within our capability. But given this wondrous truth, okay, Paul says this, that, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's telling us that his ways, they're unsearchable to us. But what does all this tell us? Paul says, of him are all things to his glory. So it's from him. He is the source of these things that bring about his glory. But notice number two tonight, that God alone also, he is the means to his glory. Not only is he the source, he's the one who planned it and put it into motion, but he is also the means. Notice in verse 36 that Paul says, through him are all things. Through him are all things meaning that he's the one who provides what is necessary. Now, when we look at this in the realm of salvation, I want you to see that two very quick things. Only God has provided salvation in his son. Yes, he planned it. That is his, that is the course of action that he brought, brought to pass, but he has provided it as well. You see, it is only God who could bring forth creation. It is only him who could bring forth redemption. And we see that God's intention in history through creation is to bring about redemption for His glory. What exactly is redemption? I think it's important for us to know this. We've covered this in depth not long ago, but I'll briefly summarize and give you a a refresher on it. Redemption is to be ransomed. It's to be purchased. It's to be set free, right? Well, that's the chief need of mankind. Since man is enslaved to his sin... And bound to the judgment of God, we need to be redeemed from the penalty of sin. Man can't redeem himself. Man can't redeem himself. Why is that? Because there are certain requirements for redemption to actually apply to us. What are those requirements? Well, the first one is a sinless payment. A pure, perfect payment that is untainted. Since sin's the problem, only sinlessness will please God. Not only that, but a sacrificial payment. This payment must involve death. Why? Because that's the very penalty of sin, right? A penalty of sin is death. Romans 6.23, you can't get around that. And so since man's not sinless and man is bound to die in his sin, he has nothing to offer God towards his redemption, what does this mean? If man is to truly be redeemed, God must be the one that provides that for him. And has God provided redemption? How wonderful it is for us to know and contemplate this truth that he has provided redemption for us in the person of Jesus with his death on the cross. And with his death on the cross, he fulfilled all that was required for redemption. He was a sinless payment. He is a sacrificial payment, shedding his blood and giving his life in death. He is a substitutional payment, that he intentionally died on behalf of his people. Now, we look at redemption. It was foreshadowed, th- foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament sacrifices that, that we read of and study. But we know that the animals were not good enough to give a complete redemptive redemption to mankind, right? Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 10.4 teaches us plainly. We're studying through this in Sunday school. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Well, since it was through man that sin entered, redemption could only come through a man. So it has to come through one who is a man. 
You think, how could such a thing ever be accomplished through man, since man is depraved? The answer would be through the God-man, Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man. You see, God promised that He would send His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh so that He could do what no other man could do. You see, all of this come to fruition in the New Testament. Galatians 4, verse 4 through 5, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, that eternal son who had always been born of a woman, born under the law. To do what? Just to live? No. To redeem. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoptions of sons. So, so we see the virgin birth here, just that he would come through a woman, that he would be fully God and that he would be fully man. And, and Hebrews goes on to tell us as, as he's quoting the Old Testament but applying it to Christ in Hebrews 10.5, Consequently, consequently, when Christ came to the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Why is it that those sacrifices would not be good enough? And rather, there's a body that's been given to the Messiah, to the Lord. Because with his body, God's Son would be perfectly obedient to him and be offered as the sacrifice. So having come into the world in this fashion, Jesus did not have that sinful nature that Adam had and that we have. He was holy, sinless, blameless before God, making him the only, the only one who could accomplish redemption for sinners. So when the world says we're narrow-minded because we think Jesus is the only way, it's because Jesus really is the only way. There is no other, no other man, no other redeemer. No other one who, who can save sinners from their sins. And that's exactly what was said of him before he came to the world. What did the angel tell Joseph in Matthew 121? You're going to call his name Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. He's not just, just another prophet. He, he is the God-man. And, and so Jesus would use his life and death to accomplish redemption for sinners. This is what the cross is all about. The sinless dying for the sinner. And as Paul says in Colossians 1.14 of Jesus, it is in him that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We know that that's not where the gospel ends, that it concludes with the resurrection, right? It goes on to his ascension. Peter preached that. God has raised him. God has raised him because if he had stayed in the tomb, he would be no different than any other man. But the resurrection is crucial to this as well. So redemption has been accomplished by God alone, only Him. So God alone provides redemption, provides salvation in His Son. Then notice also that God alone applies salvation by His Spirit. He's the one who applies it to us. Now, when we consider the whole of what God has done and how He's done it, not only with the work of the Son, but also through the Spirit, what has the Spirit of God accomplished? How is it that man comes to know about what God has done for him and how that actually applies to him? Well, firstly, we understand the importance of the Spirit's role in the revelation of Scripture, right? Revelation of Scripture, even, even through the Old Testament, right? Who is it that moves through the prophets to prophesy of the coming Messiah? It was the Spirit of God. So from the beginning, the Spirit of God has been at work in revealing the truth of God to man. 
And we come to the New Testament and we see the same thing applies. The revelation of Scripture. The written Word of God is essential to man's salvation. As Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The Word of God. The preaching of the Word. And now we have it pinned on paper. We're so blessed to have it in one volume. And uh, take it with us and study it wherever we go. But how did we get that word? It was through the work of the Holy Spirit. Men of God were supernaturally inspired to pen the words of God for mankind. Now, Jesus promised this in John 16, 13. When he's talking to disciples, he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you things that are to come. You understand that that is a promise of inspiration to the apostles. I believe there's probably more practical principle that he is one that helps guide us in our study and coming to truth. But I think the immediate application there is that he's saying to those apostles, he's going to guide you into truth. He's going to tell you things to come, right? And that's exactly what we have in the pages of Scripture. So with the revelation of God, the Spirit empowers the preaching of it, the preaching of the Word of God. You understand that powerful preaching does not rest in the eloquence of a speaker. It rests in the Holy Spirit. It rests in the Holy Spirit. That's why even there's, there's some preachers you'll listen to. They're probably the most boring preachers on the planet. But yet at the same time, God works through them in a way that you think, how did, how, how did God use him to do that? Jonathan Edwards' sermon, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of Angry God, is said to have been very monotone by, by, in history. But yet it was a sermon that gripped people so fiercely that they were afraid the earth was going to fall from under and they'd fall into hell. What, what, what works that? It's not the man, it's the Holy Spirit of God working in the hearts of sinners. And so when we consider all of this, this brings us to the fact that the Spirit of God alone is the person who regenerates sinners' hearts. Not us. It's Him. What happens through the preaching of the gospel? Well, a lost sinner is awakened by the Spirit to see their sinful condition for what it really is. Their corruption, their condemnation, their eyes are opened to see that Christ alone is Savior. And if they are ever to have salvation, they must believe on Christ. Their heart is pierced by the gospel. And through this work of the Spirit, they now want to be saved, whereas they had no desire for that beforehand. They ran from it. Once they're brought to that point, what happens? We find that their dependence turns from their own self-righteousness to Christ and His redemptive work. They now have faith. With that faith, they have forgiveness. Acts 10.43 tells us, To Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. So that, that's how it happens, right? That's, we, see, we see the preaching of the word and we see a sinner responds and believes. What's, what happened in that whole circumstance? Well, today's world will tell you, oh, so glad that person made that choice to believe. And in one sense, it is true. But in the deeper sense, you understand what took place behind the scenes. Is that God, the Holy Spirit, was at work in them, bringing them to that point in which they believed. That's what happens. So to who belongs glory when it comes to regeneration? Who belongs glory? God alone. Jesus said in John 6, 44, 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Without God working, drawing a sinner, no man can come, nor will he come. He won't come. He desires to not, not to come. And so we find that in the Scriptures that, that this drawing work is, is a calling that God alone works in the sinner's heart. Now, to further point this out, I want to read from 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26 through 31 for a moment. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 through 31. And notice of the Corinthians here how Paul points to them as those who are called. This is, this is a, a, a prevailing word of Paul in the realm of those who are called into Christ and those who are saved. He says in verse 26, Consider, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why has God worked in this way? Well, he answers that in verse 29, so that no human might boast or glory in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in God. You'll notice that their calling was not conditional, it was unconditional. It wasn't based on who was smartest or wisest or had the most noble form of birth. But notice what he says in verse 29. Why does God work in this way in his calling, his drawing? So that no human might boast in the presence of God. That's the point. Because no one has the right to boast in the presence of God. There's not one person who can say, oh, I'm saved because I did something. It's all of him from beginning to end. Notice in verse 30. It says, of him are you in Christ Jesus. Of him, not of you, of him. And so verse 31 is the capstone to this, that we're saved only to the point that we can boast in the Lord. So, so when we claim anything about our salvation, we must always recognize that it's of him and through him and to him. Not of me. Not of me. We must understand. That if we are truly converted, it is because the Lord sought us, not that we were seeking Him. C.S. Lewis, who was a former atheist, gives his testimony. He says this, I never had the experience of looking for God. It was the other way around. He was the hunter and I was the deer. That applies to us hunters, right? We understand that. We're the ones out there seeking, hunting, wanting. And the same is true with God. You say, well, what about those who seem to seek God? I love Spurgeon's quote in this realm. He says, they who seek Christ are already sought by him. So you understand how God's providence is at work in, in bringing people to himself. So we remember man's nature. He doesn't naturally seek God. It's God that intervenes into his nature. So understand that God has not accomplished redemption in the Son, only to leave sinners still dead in their depravity. The Spirit's work has given us the revelation of Scripture and continues to work by regenerating sinners. And this is why the preaching of the gospel is essential. That we don't think God's just going to unilaterally save people because he has ordained the means as well as the ends. This is why we take the gospel to the entirety of the world and we preach it to everyone. It's through the scriptures and the spirit that the sinners experience redemption. 
When any sinner comes to faith, where belongs the glory? 1 Corinthians 3, 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Here's one of the problems I see in today's Christianity. There's a lot of emphasis upon numbers, upon look what's happening here, as if they're the ones accomplishing it. I about can't stomach some of that stuff. Because anything good that comes from our ministries is always from God Himself. Always from God Himself, not from us. And so what are we seeing through all of this? All that Paul sums up in this one little verse, in Romans 11.36, he says, through Him are all things. Of Him, He's the source. Through Him, He's also the means. So we see glory to God alone. Notice with me lastly and thirdly, God alone has purposed His glory. And this brings us to the very end of this. Notice that Paul says, to Him. This is the end purpose to which God has done all this. To Him are all things. Since all things are of Him and through Him, we see that it is to God that He has purposed this glory. And I want to close with these two two points here. And this brings us really to the consummation of all things. Letter A, the consummation of all things glorifies God. When we think about the consummation of all things, we're talking about the very end and what eventually leads into the eternal state, right? What is the end that God has declared? Well, a lot of people don't think that God has the right to declare what the end is going to be. But God says through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, remember the former things of old. I'm God and there is no other. I am God. There is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. And from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. It really boils down to who's God, us or him. God's God. He has the right to declare the end. I don't. And when we look at the full scope of history leading into eternity, what do we find? We find that God alone is glorified in the consummation, in the outcome of all things. Now, it's easy for us to see that God is glorified in His grace, mercy, and love and salvation, right? That's where most people think, oh, God's glorified, God's glorified in this. But did you know that God is also glorified in His holiness, justice, and wrath? God's glorified in His judgment, in His execution of such. We read in Romans 9, 22 through 24 for a moment, what if God, Paul writing, desiring to show his wrath and make his known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Does God get glory in judgment on sin and sinners? Absolutely he does. And if we fail to see that, we don't see the whole scope of his glory. God's not only glorified in salvation, He's also glorified in justice. Because justice reveals how holy He is. And holiness is the central characteristic of all that God is. He is holy. So there's coming a day in which God will judge all sin, all evil, committed by both sinners and Satan and fallen angels. And guess what? He's going to wipe out all evil and eliminate it completely to the end that he will show forth his glory. And this is all because of the cross of Jesus. Beyond the judgment to come, we find the jubilant eternity for all of God's people. His glory will be on display beyond measure as he brings us into that eternal state. 
we enjoy him and forever praise him for his wondrous work of redemption. I want to read one final text in Revelation 5. I love this passage. Revelation 5, verse 9 through 14. This is a heavenly scene in which uh, the hosts of heaven, saints of, saints of God as well, they're singing in the presence of Jesus, but it reveals the glory of God and his redemption. The Bible says they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You'll notice through this text that the theme is the glory of God and what He's done for us. In short, they're saying, Lord, You've done all of this. There's not one of us in heaven who will claim, I deserve to be here. We will bow in, bow in praise and give glory to God alone for all of eternity. Notice with me, letter B, by way of closing, I want you to see the application to mankind is this. It's to glorify God alone. And this really brings down, we could look at the theology all day long, but this boils down to our own life. What should we as God's people do with such knowledge of God's preeminent glory in all things? You understand that this truth ought to permeate your life, Christian? It ought to permeate our life. We are to seek and promote the glory of God with our lives, knowing that our creation and our redemption are all accomplished by Him for this purpose. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Right there you have that same, same theme that he mentions in Romans, in our text. And so you understand that the life of the believer must be centrally focused upon the glory of God. Even in the little things. The glory of God in your life is not just about Sunday worship, although that should be central. The glory of God in your life applies to all aspects of your life. Whatever you do, do it to what? The glory of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. I can't think of anything smaller than eating and drinking. And then he goes on to include everything. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And truly, living a life to the glory of God in all things, it stems from us properly knowing and contemplating the glorious person of God. I like this quote by Spurgeon. He says, The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, and the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. Contemplating, pondering upon the vast, infinite glory of God. So we ask ourselves, how often do we just think about God? 
How glorious, how deep He is. And I believe that this is so vital to the gospel and the church. Yet, in our day, we see many who talk about God's glory, but in their doctrine and practice, they are centralized upon themselves and their own movements. Our culture has infiltrated the church, teaching them that the gospel is about man for man and to man. It's not. It's about God and for Him. Isaiah the prophet, God said through him, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. You know what that shows us? God is protective of his glory. He's protective of it because he's the only one who deserves it, right? And what we find is that the people of God have not wholly forsaken their idols. For they are no longer these physical objects as in ancient day, but instead they are the philosophical and practical methods of the heathen. The influences of relativism and materialism, pragmatism, humanism have infiltrated the church under the cloak of gospel ministry and have altered the place where glory truly belongs. So ultimately, all that we say and do flows from what we truly think about God. A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when I think about God is the most important thing about us. Is God so small that he needs our unbiblical additions to accomplish his work? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, the opposite is true. His work is hindered because of man's uninvited intervention. And I believe that we today are in need of great reformation and revival. Many, many spots of Christianity need this. We need the realization that the glory of God alone is preeminent in all things. It is to be preeminent in salvation, for it is all of Him. It is to be preeminent in our worship, for it is all for Him. It is to be preeminent in our service, because it's all through Him. So that's something to contemplate. We're well aware of our salvation. It's all of Him, right? But what about in our worship? We gather. Do we come only for Him? Do we come for Him? When we serve and do things, do we do it because of Him? All that we've seen in this one little text, Romans eleven thirty six, should cause us to ponder upon the glory of God because when we abandon this doctrinal pillar of glory to God alone, we invite all forms of dangerous influences into the gospel ministry and church function. So we hold to this emphatically, that God is glorified and that it's always to Him alone. So I pray this was a good reminder to you and uh, encouragement. It's one that I hold to. Uh, dearly in my heart, because I do not want to do anything for the benefit of me, for the attention of me. I want only, only God to be glorified in everything that we do and say, and uh, it's a central tenet to our, our Christian practice and our walk and our church, our function, everything, is that glory is to Him alone.